Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, you can check out our audio archive every week at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Thank you. All right, hey, if you want to open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. Title of this message this morning is Satisfied. Didn't start out as satisfied. It started out as a message called Hunger, Cannibalism, and the Son of God, but I decided to change it. (laughs) If that doesn't make sense, it'll make sense later. Sweet. There we go. That works. Yeah, I want to talk to you just a little bit this morning out of John chapter 6. And I want to talk to you about being satisfied. Like on the deepest parts of who you are, like completely, totally, absolutely satisfied. The reason I want to talk to you about that is because um, everybody gets hungry. There's a reason we just played Bruce Springsteen in the three-minute break. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody in the world gets hungry. Everybody gets hungry. Babies get hungry, and old people get hungry, and rich people get hungry, and poor people get hungry, and nice people get hungry, and mean people get hungry, black people get hungry, and white people get hungry. Even, even the Chinese get hungry. Even, even those guys. Everybody gets hungry. Republicans get hungry. Democrats get hungry, atheists get hungry, the devout get hungry, everybody gets hungry. In fact, hunger is part of what it means to be a human being. There are a handful of things which connect every living person, even though we're radically diverse. There are a handful of things that connect every human person. There's a handful of things that that sort of that sort of are the essence of what it means to be a human. And uh, these things, they supersede political persuasion, religious inclination, uh, they supersede race, and and one of them absolutely is hunger. Uh, It's a terrible feeling. Anybody in here ever been hungry? Not a little bit, but like really hungry? It's just a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling. You, You get so unsatisfied, your stomach begins to turn, it growls, and then eventually it doesn't. And it's funny how an empty stomach takes on sort of an existential dimension. After a certain period of time. Like at first you're just hungry. Maybe you've missed lunch by 15 or 20 minutes. But you let that go just a little bit. And soon enough, your hunger becomes bigger than just what's in your stomach. It begins to be reflected into the greater world. Not only are you unsatisfied in terms of, I'm missing a meal. But then it begins to get to this point where life has just lost all of its meaning. And anyone who's ever fasted knows what I'm talking about. You, you, you fast for more than a day, and somewhere around day two and a half, life has lost all of its meaning. Like people you love, you don't even like them anymore. Things you love, you don't care about. You just you lay on the couch. Like you were totally fine before you started this mess, and the next thing you know, you're totally depressed.
The reason this happens is because hunger has a way of driving a person. All of your faculties, all of your faculties come together to work to overcome hunger. When you get hungry, everything in your being begins to coalesce and fixate on this one thing. What does it do? What do we have to do to get satisfied? See, appetite keeps you alive. Your appetite keeps you alive. It drives us to find nourishment. It drives us to stay full and fed and well. Uh, hungry babies make their mamas happy. When a baby seems disinterested in eating, that's a grave concern. Uh, and anybody who's ever held a newborn, and when that newborn pops out of its mama's belly and it jumps on mama's booby and it goes to town, everybody in the room just sort of like takes a sigh of relief. We're like, yes, it's working, everything's good. And if you've ever been around a baby that seemed disinterested or seemed like it couldn't get going, there's just sort of this, and no one really lets out any air. We're like, we're measuring that little baby and we're, we're seeing if it's growing in ounces, like we're counting ounces. You've ever done that? You ever been... Counting ounces, like, why? Because if you don't have an appetite, this is going to be a big concern. Appetite is a big deal. Everybody's hungry. Now I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine living 2,000 years ago when there was no Kroger and when there was no Walmart. I mean, there were markets, of course, but I want you to imagine that there was no worldwide food supply chain. And whenever it was in season, that's what it was available so long as it was a good year. Imagine that if you were going to eat, it had to be a decent year. And whatever was at the market is what you had. And if it wasn't a good year, if the weather was a little bit bad, imagine not only your family, but everybody suffers. Right? If there's no worldwide food supply, right? That's what happens. Uh, you, you can probably imagine why... Uh, you can probably imagine why people assigned weather and seasons to the actions of the gods. Your life depends on it, right? That's how it goes. So too little rain and we're all starving. Now, even though these days we can ship food worldwide, probably the grapes that are in your refrigerator came from Chile. You ever look at the little labels? I always do. Where did that come from? probably came from Chile, even though we can ship food worldwide and even though there's a store on every corner and even though we've got a lot of this figured out, people are still hungry. Some people who are living in less developed corners of the world are hungry for a bite to eat, but the rest of us are starving with our bellies full. I run into this all the time. Most of my conversations with people that take on a pastoral dimension can be summed up with this. People who are starving with full bellies. See, right beneath our appetite for, for right beneath our appetite for food, there's an ache that's harder to name, and it drives us. Everybody in here knows what I'm talking about. There's an ache that sits right beneath your appetite for food. It's 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 harder to name, but it drives us. And in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And I want to read a little bit of that this morning. John chapter 6. This is one of the very few stories that's in all four Gospels. Translation, this, this is really important. John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee also known as the Sea of Tiberias, and a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because 
They saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and he sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly the time for the Jewish Passover celebration. That's actually really important this morning. You might even want to underline verse 4. And Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. And turning to Philip, he asked, Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Now he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. And Philip replied, Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy over here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. And then Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks to God, and he distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather up the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled twelve baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. And when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. We'll stop right there. This is one of those stories that's in all four Gospels. It's an important one. John throws a note there in verse 4. He says that this happened around Passover. And that's an important note because part of what John is telling us is this. This is an Exodus passage. You guys remember the Exodus story? You guys remember the Exodus story? It goes kind of like this. God's favorite people, some of God's favorite people were being oppressed in Egypt. And right around Passover, God sets about setting them free. And he says, hey, here's how we're going to do it. I want everybody to take a lamb. Take a lamb into your house. I want you to kill the lamb. Put the blood of that lamb on your doorpost. Put the blood of that lamb on your wooden doorpost. It speaks of the cross. Put the blood of the lamb on your wooden doorpost. And everybody who's got the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, everybody who has that, when the death angel comes over, he'll just pass right over, pass over. And I want you to eat that lamb. I want you to take it in and eat it in a hurry. So John is telling us this morning that this passage where Jesus is feeding 5,000 people, this is not just some random miracle. This is an Exodus passage. This is a Passover passage. And in the same way that God was setting about his people into freedom in Exodus, in the same way that God was setting his people free from Egypt, Jesus is beginning to set people free in the new Exodus, in the new Passover. The real lamb has showed up, and he's going to satisfy everyone. See, John is saying, God is here serving up another Passover meal. He's preparing for a greater Exodus. So people have come to Jesus, and they've stayed so long. This is kind of how this story sets up. People have come to Jesus and they've stayed so long listening to him that Jesus feels the need to feed them. Let's imagine this for a while. How good does the preacher have to be for you to stay so long that you become not just a little bit hungry, but so hungry that Jesus is concerned for your well-being? 
I don't know. How long is that? I don't know. How many of you understand that if you stay so long out in the countryside listening to the preacher, that the preacher becomes concerned for your well-being? You are a hungry person. You were hungry way before you got hungry. Jesus is already beginning to key in that there's a different kind of hunger that he wants to satisfy. So this is a story that's working on two levels right away. Do we all see that? Like if you're showing up out in the middle of the wilderness and you're going to listen to a guy preach for so long, if his words are feeding your soul, if his words are feeding your insides, if you've been starving on the inside for something that you're willing to forego food just so it can hit my ears, my head, and my heart, how many of you understand you're starving? Yeah. That's what Jesus knows. It's a story on a couple levels. It's a story on a couple levels. So people have come and they've listened so long that Jesus feels the need to feed them. They're hungry people. They've forgone eating. And Jesus feeds the people. And he feeds them with just a few loaves and a few fish. And everyone ate as much as they wanted. I love, I love the line that John gives us. Everyone ate until they were full. And there's 12 basketfuls left over. And by now you've probably recognized that this story is being played out on a couple different levels. It's being played out in the stomach, but it's also being played out in the heart or in the soul of a person. It's interesting to me that Jesus uses one kind of, one kind of way of dealing with people to illustrate another. Jesus, Jesus, illustrates, Jesus illustrates by feeding people's stomachs that what he really wants to do is feed their souls and feed their hearts. Jesus is almost always working like this. We tend to separate things. Jesus is always the guy who's bringing things back together. We tend to separate things into spiritual and non-spiritual, important and not important, God stuff and not God stuff, spirit and matter. And Jesus is always putting them together and he's using one to illuminate the other. He is, after all, the word made flesh, right? That's what, God, that's what John says at the very beginning of his gospel. And so the rest of the gospel is basically, basically this one long meditation on spirit and matter have come together and they illuminate one another. And so when Jesus feeds your stomach, he's really getting at the fact that he wants to feed your heart. Always. We tend to separate them. Jesus never does. And so people come to Jesus and they come hungry and their hunger causes them to stay until they're hungry. That's one way of understanding this passage. And then Jesus feeds them. He fills their stomachs and everyone's satisfied. They're not very enlightened, but they are satisfied. And the crowd becomes impressed and they, they, they try to make Jesus king. They try to make him king. Not in the sense, not in the sense that he wants to be king, but they want to make a king who can feed everybody. Makes sense, right? After all, food is scarce. This guy can take just a little bit and make a lot. Let's, let's let him be our leader. But he slips away. He slips away. Not only that, but Jesus seems to slip away from his own disciples. This is the part of the story I really like. He seems to slip away from his own disciples. And his disciples are not entirely sure where he's at. And, and they get the bright idea, well, let's just get in the boat and go back across the lake. We won't read it, but it's the very next thing that happens. Jesus feeds the 5,000. This crowd, because they're impressed, they come to make him king. Jesus slips away, even from his own disciples. The disciples jump in the boat, back across the lake. And in the middle of the night, Jesus comes walking out on the water. 
By the way, I told you this is a Passover passage, right? This is an Exodus passage. So after Jesus begins to satisfy people right around Passover, he's walking on the lake. He's not, he's not splitting the seas. He's superior. He's walking on the seas. This is, this is Exodus through and through. And it says that immediately the disciples got to where they were going. And the next morning the crowd wakes up and they say, wonder where he's at. And so the crowd who was on one side of the lake hops in their boats and they go to the other side of the lake and they try to find Jesus. And of course, they do find him. And when they find him, Jesus says, hey, you know what? You're here because you just want more food. You're chasing me down because you want more food. And Jesus tells the crowd, don't worry about food. You should spend your energy seeking the eternal life the Son of Man has come to offer. And they said to Jesus, we would like to perform the works of God. You can read this in John chapter 6. Jesus says, you guys are just chasing me down because you want another bite of my bread. I got some good bread. And they said, we would like to perform the works of God. What's the translation? Translation, we would like to do that food multiplying thing you do. That's, that's what they mean. We would like to... How do you do your tricks? We would like to do the food multiplying thing that you do. We would like to have power. Can you impart power to us so that we can do the food multiplying thing? And Jesus says... Jesus says, you need to spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man has to offer. Jesus said, here's only one thing that God wants from you. And He wants you to believe the Son that He has sent. We would like to do the works of God. We would like to multiply bread. Jesus said there's only one work that the Son of God wants from you. And it's believe in the one that the Father has sent. Man, that's a great word. That is a great, great word. Man, what a word of freedom for everybody in the room this morning who's hungry. The beginning to be, the beginning of being like really satisfied in your heart, really, really satisfied of getting rid of all the angst, of getting rid of all the anxiety, of getting rid of even like the spiritual need to do miracles, getting rid of, getting rid of the need to be important, getting rid of the need to have power and position, the, 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 the key to beginning to be really satisfied in your heart is believe in the one the Father has sent. Just believe in Jesus. Just like begin to put your trust in Him. Everyone who is worried, everybody who's hungry, everybody who feels empty, everybody who's anxious, and everyone who feels the pressure to even do the things that Jesus did, you can't do it until you first really, really, really put your trust in the one the Father has sent. It's that simple. You just, you just believe in Him. You just, you just trust Him. You let your anxious, your worried, your hungry, and your empty heart be satisfied in Him. Let all of your spiritual hunger be swallowed up. Let all of your spiritual hunger be swallowed up. Let the smile of satisfaction come upon your whole person. There is not a 12-step program to being a, being a happy and a satisfied person. It's a one-step program. It's called Trust Jesus. Like, you can't do all this stuff until you first do the one thing that's so elemental. You can't do it. And it's so basic. It gets rid of all the anxiety. It gets rid of all of the static. Jesus says, there's only one work God wants from you. It's believing the one he sent. Then the crowd says to him, well, show us a sign and we'll believe. Translation, make some more bread. Make some more bread and we'll eat it and we'll believe. The crowd also goes on to say, After all, Moses gave us bread in the desert. 
Again, this is an Exodus passage, right? The crowd says, Moses gave us bread in the desert. And Jesus says that the true bread is the bread that comes down from heaven. He says, number one, Moses didn't give you the bread. My father gave you the bread. And number two, the true bread is the bread that comes down from heaven. And then he goes on to say something shocking. I am the bread that came down from heaven. See, I don't just multiply the bread. I am the bread. I don't just pull a rabbit out of my hat. I am not a bit of momentary relief. This is the issue. Some of us are not satisfied because we've come to Jesus for a bit of momentary relief. Jesus, I need a miracle. Here's the deal. You can get a miracle and never be satisfied. I know tons of people who have seen miracles and they do not believe. I know people who have seen God do astounding things and their heart is just as anxious, just as filled with angst, just as unbelieving, just as hungry, starving. You can get a bit of momentary satisfaction and never have the smile of contentment come on your life. You can get a bit of multiplied bread and miss the bread that comes down from heaven. I'm the source is what Jesus says. I'm the satisfaction. I'm complete and total nourishment. I am fullness. I am life. Then he says something even better. And anyone who comes to me will never be hungry again. See, if you're hungry, you have to come to Jesus. If you're aching, you have to come to Jesus. And if you're needy, you have to come to Jesus. If you're wasting away, for the love of God, come to Jesus. Hunger is a journey, by the way. Hunger is always a journey. It's a journey to the next meal. It's a hunger. Uh, It's a journey to the next thing, to the next job, to the next lover, to the next car, to the bigger house, you name it. Everybody's hungry for something, and it's always a journey to something. Some of us are just bouncing from one thing to the next. We're so unsatisfied. We're on this journey. Our appetites, they drive us. In many ways, Abraham, he left home because he was already hungry before God called him. If he wasn't hungry, he would never have been able to hear what God had to say. Because no one in their right mind would have left their mother and their father and their home country and set out to a place that he didn't even know where he was going with the little bit he had. He was already prepared to hear the word of God. Our appetites drive us. We spend our lives searching. We spend our energy searching. Just like a hungry man will set out for food, our appetites set us on journeys, but the destination and the satisfaction is always in Jesus. Jesus says we don't ever have to be hungry again if we'll come to Him. But I've noticed something about my own life. I've noticed that oftentimes I'm still hungry. There's only one logical conclusion, and the logical conclusion is this. I've withheld parts of my life from Jesus. It's the mystery. It's the paradox of being a disciple. You can come to Jesus and not come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus with one part and leave another part in a little closet that we like, a little private closet. You can come to Jesus with some, but not all. And I've noticed that sometimes I'm still hungry, and the reason is always because I've left some secret hidden part back away from Him. I've kept a taste for other things here and there in my life. Maybe you have too. 
So I return to him. See, that's ultimately the disciple's life. The disciple's life is learning to come to Jesus and learning, learning to come to the place where we finally realize that he is our satisfaction all the way down. He's the prize. He's the gold. He's the meal. That's what disciples do. Disciples learn over and over and over that all the other things that we thought were better were just shadows, that he's the real thing. Every time we get a new lover, every single time we get a new lover, every time we give another part of ourselves away, eventually, if we're a disciple of Jesus, we wake up to the fact that all what we were really looking for was him. You'll never find what you're looking for in the bottom of, in the bottom of a pill bottle, in the bottom of, a, of any kind of bottle. You'll never find it in somebody's bed. You will never find it in another purchase. You will never find it with a bigger credit limit. You will never find it in another house or in a new, loca- new location. Every journey you're on is ultimately a journey to being satisfied in Him. He's the gold. He's the mill. He's the prize. Then the crowd grumbles. They grumble against Jesus' words. Come to me, you'll never be hungry again. The crowd begins to grumble. Can you imagine? Again, this is an Exodus story. What do the children of Israel do in the desert? They grumble against God. They get manna every morning, and what do they say? The manna sucks. (laughs) That's what they say. Can we have something different? We'd like quail. God says, sure, you can have quail. You will have quail until you puke it out your noses. And then they're like, we want manna. Crowd grumbles against Jesus' words. Grumbling in the desert. See, we're always tempted to become disappointed with God's provision. Uh, you think you're not. You, you will all, one of the great temptations for every disciple after you wake up, to, to the fact that God is providing something to us, the, the very next temptation is to become disappointed with God's provision. Uh, nothing is so much a block to the things of God than sophisticated tastes. Here's the deal. What God is doing is oftentimes less sophisticated than what, less sophisticated than what you and I really like. Refinement is almost always... Refined tastes are almost always the doorway to being tempted to reject God and His provision. God is almost always coming to us in something really simple and really, really humble. Manna. What is it? That's what manna means. What is it? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. The crowd begins to grumble. What, we like some, we, we've got refined tastes. You're just, you're, see, here's, here's why they begin to, this is the grumble they have against Jesus. Oh, wait, isn't he just the carpenter's son? How can you be the bread that came down from heaven? You're too simple. You're too humble. Wrong family. Wait a minute. Wait, when you're doing that trick, we're awesome. But when we, when we just get you, we were hoping for somebody stronger. We were hoping for somebody better. We were hoping for somebody with 16-inch arms. We were hoping for somebody with a better smile, a chiseled face. We were hoping for somebody who was a little more like Brad Pitt. We were hoping for somebody with bigger guns. We were hoping for somebody who would shoot all of our enemies. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. They begin to grumble against them. What? Sophisticated tastes. Like, maybe you're not even as impressive as Moses. Sophisticated Bible tastes will oftentimes 
keep us from the things of God. You think I'm kidding? I'm telling you. Manna is so boring. Jesus is just a carpenter. How in the world could he be the bread from heaven? See, but satisfaction comes wrapped in simplicity and satiation comes packaged in humility. Come on. Refined tastes will block you from the things of God. You know, I, you know what I really like in revival? I like... It's true. Well, that meeting wasn't very great. You know, the preaching was just so-so. And the worship band, they never did sing the new song of the Lord. And the ministry team, they didn't have on name badges. And I didn't know who was going to pray for me. And somebody gave me a word that was a little weird. And this is why moves of God always stop. I don't like the manna anymore. The manna was cool when I was starving, but now I'm not starving. I don't like it anymore. I got a refined taste. Why isn't there rosemary in my, in my, in my manna? Where's the thyme and the oregano? God's like, I don't know. I got manna with salt. What you, I mean, this is what we got. I was hoping for something better, and we get a carpenter. I mean, carpenters are, I was hoping for a politician, and you get a carpenter. And then in the midst of their grumbling, Jesus really strikes a chord. He doesn't just say, I'm the bread that's come down for heaven. Then he goes on to say, and the bread is my own flesh. And everybody's shocked. They're shocked because, well, Jews would never even eat an animal with blood in it, let alone another person. Jesus is gigging them at this point. You need to understand that. They grumble against him and Jesus just sticks in the night. I'm not just the bread that came down from heaven, but the bread is my flesh. So you have to ask the question, is Jesus talking about cannibalism? Well, no, but yeah. First off, you have to ask the question, why would Jesus be, off- be so offensive? Well, let me ask another question. What's more offensive? To suggest eating one's flesh and blood or to scoff at the notion that Jesus could actually be the bread that came down from heaven. This is what he's getting at. See, I think Jesus is turning the rhetoric against the crowd. I think it's a judo move, if you will. I think he uses their own offensiveness against them. And I think that Jesus is prophetically foreshadowing his own death and his victory that it would contain. Jesus is essentially saying this. You know what's offensive? You know what's really offensive? You know what's more offensive than a carpenter who says he's the bread of heaven? You know what's more offensive than me saying that you should eat my flesh and you'll, and you'll always be satisfied? You know what's more offensive than that? The fact that the very people who are most hungry and in need are going to kill my body and spill my blood. That's what's really offensive. You know what's really offensive? The people who need me the most are going to be the ones who hang me naked on a tree. That's what's offensive. You know what's terrible? Here's what's terrible. Innocence is here, and innocence is going to get murdered. That's what's terrible. What's terrible is the innocent Lamb of God is going to get killed. And crazier still, God is going to forgive everybody who killed Him, and He will apply the blood to the door of their hearts, and everyone who will feast on the Lamb that they killed will be saved. What in the world are we talking about here? This is the ultimate judo move. The fundamental principle of judo is you use someone else's force and energy against them. 
That's what Jesus is doing here. You know what's offensive? Here's what's offensive. The innocent lamb of God is here. The bread from heaven is here. You guys are hungry and you're going to kill me. And then even after you kill me, we're going to forgive you so that my body and my blood can cleanse you and we can have a great exodus and we can leave Egypt all together and we can enter into the promised land. Like you guys don't even understand. We're on the edge of the promised land. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. See, this is the paradox of the whole Jesus story. The paradox is this, that our appetites which lead us into bondage ultimately lead us to him so that we can be set free. And by the way, it's always our appetites which lead us into bondage. It's famine which drives us to Egypt, just like Jacob's family was sent to Egypt because of a famine. It is famine in your heart that will send you to Egypt every time. Every single time. If you are in chains of any kind, if you have habitual sin that will not leave you alone, understand this. What you really have is famine in your heart. Famine in your heart. You ended up in Egypt because there was famine in your heart. And what's paradoxical about the whole darn thing is that in the end, the very famine that led you to Egypt will be the famine that God shows up into and he will lead you out. It's wonderful. The mercy of God never, ever leaves us in Egypt. He comes to us and he says, I know you've been hungry. I know you've been looking here and there for satisfaction in the arms of that lover. I know that you've been looking for it in the bottom of a pill bottle. I know that you've been looking for it at the top of this career or that career or this trip or that trip and this purchase or that new car. This is what we do. Right there in the middle of your bondage, God shows up to ravenously hungry people. And he says, if you'll eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll never be hungry again. If you'll feast on my flesh and my blood, if you will enter my life and my death, if you'll eat my flesh, if you'll, if you'll consume my life, and if you'll drink my blood, if you'll accept my death, I'll give you something that'll make you satisfied forever. If you'll trust, if you'll believe that the one you've avoided, rejected and killed is here with healing in his wings, you can be satisfied. If you believe that death was not the final answer for God's Passover lamb, then it won't be for you either. See, and that's, that's the meal we've been looking for. It's humble, but it satisfies. And you might be thinking, well, how? How do we eat his flesh and drink his blood, right? How do we do that? A couple ways. N- number one, by believing that Jesus satisfies. The number one way that you begin to eat his flesh and drink his blood is believing in the one that the Father has sent and ultimately believing that he satisfies. And this will be a journey. At the beginning, you'll believe... Certain parts of you will believe that Jesus satisfies and you might have a part or two that you hold back. But eventually, you live in Egypt long enough and you'll get rid of it as well. You have to believe that Jesus satisfies. And here's, there's one distinction that we need to make here. Uh, we need to believe that Jesus satisfies and not just what Jesus does. Not just what Jesus does. Jesus is the meal. Not just what Jesus is multiplying. See, a lot of the church believes that they can be satisfied in what Jesus is doing. Uh, That'll never work. Uh, Here's the deal. More people live uncontented life because they have fixated on what Jesus is doing rather than being satisfied with Him. Like what Jesus is doing is always meant to lead us back to Him. Every, every good thing that God has, every blessing that He gives, every miracle that he, that he performs in our midst was never ever meant to satisfy us. It was meant to be a little crumb on the path that leads us back to Him so we could finally be nourished in Him. 
This is an important distinction. You've got to begin to believe that Jesus is your satisfaction. Interventions will never satisfy. Interventions never satisfy people. They just never do. I love them. But ultimately, they're just signs pointing to Him. They've got to look for what they're pointing to. And, and believing this starts today and it continues tomorrow. It's a process of letting go of other unsatisfactory options. Church, we've got to believe that Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven for, for you and for me. Uh, one of the second ways that we enter into eating His flesh and drinking His blood and being satisfied, uh, really simple, is by receiving communion just the way we did this morning. This is huge. This is huge. This is not just something we do on the second Sunday of the month during the third song and, you know, it kind of becomes chaotic and you know, cracker. See, even the language here in John chapter 6, it, it's sacramental. Jesus is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And how many of you, when we're, re- when we're talking about this, start thinking about what we did this morning? Did anybody here start thinking about it? You should have. Yes, you should have. This is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. It's one of the ways we enter into his life. There is something available when we receive communion. It's not just a little symbol. I know some of us grew up Southern Baptist and we've been taught it's a symbol. No, it is not a symbol. It's way bigger than that. It is way bigger than that. I am thoroughly 100% with Martin Luther on this one. When we take bread and wine, there is real presence available. He is available. Why? Why? Because Jesus is the Word made flesh, right? It is the fact that Spirit can contact matter and that we can take a little cracker and dip it in bread and you can think, oh, there's nothing else here. Wrong, man. There's real presence available. God is oftentimes infusing Himself into things that we think are too basic and too humble and too simple. When you put it in your mouth, you're putting in the life of God in your mouth. This is, this, is, this is big. And no, here's the deal. If you don't have any faith, it's just a cracker and a little bit of wine. But with, with faith, when faith is present in the church, this is a moment for us to make contact with God. These are little foretastes of satisfaction. They're little reminders that we have nothing to fear. When we receive communion, it's a little reminder that we have nothing to fear. What am I, what am I mean? Here's what I mean. I mean, if the guy we killed in the midst of getting killed, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If the guy we killed chooses forgiveness, then what fear is there left in the whole universe? Like the universe has been shaped by forgiveness. Like if the guy we killed, and by the way, I want us to get this. The father didn't kill Jesus. We killed Jesus. And if the guy that we killed says, Father, forgive them, what is there left to fear? Every time we dip the cracker into the juice and put it in our mouth, it's a little reminder. There's nothing left to fear. Let go of it. There's nothing left to fear. And not only that, if that guy's chosen to forgive us, would he not fully satisfy us? One of the, one of the major fears we have to overcome in the church is the fear of being dissatisfied. Then ultimately, if we put our trust in Jesus, he's going to let us down. See, oh... Here's the deal, church. Jesus is our feast. He's our reward. Let your heart be satisfied in the sons of God. Let your hunger lead you to Him. God's children don't have to grovel. And we don't have to feel our stomachs on the pods of the pigs. Thirdly, how do we... 
How do we eat his flesh and drink his blood? By slowly learning how to turn all of our appetites to him. By letting our hunger be a journey deeper into God. This is, this is hard, but it's, 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 it's what we've got to do. Everybody in here has got a hungry heart. Bruce Springsteen's right. Everybody in here is hungry for something. And we have, to, we, have to, we have to say, you know what? This hunger that I'm feeling right now, it's ultimately a hunger for God. It doesn't feel like a hunger for God, but it is. It doesn't feel like a journey toward Jesus, but it is. All of our addictions are ultimately longings for God. Every single one. We have to let, we have to let those hunger, that thing that's inside of us, we have to let it be a journey back to Him. So even this morning, I, I, I totally believe that, like Bruce Springsteen, I, I believe that song is like, I believe it's from God. I believe it's good. I believe it's probably better than most of what Chris Tomlin ever wrote. I got an amen from the back somewhere. Everybody's got a hungry heart. We just have to feed, we just have to we just have to wake up to the reality that what we're really hungry for is him. And especially those things that seem radically opposed to God that we're still having an appetite for, especially those things that seem radically opposed to God and his kingdom, we have to let the faith grow in our hearts that it might just be an ache for the Almighty. See, some of us here this morning are addicted to pornography. And what you don't realize is uh, you're really just hungry for God and intimacy. See, we, we, a, lot of us, a lot of us are looking, are looking at pornography because we, what we really want is we want to know and we want to be fully known. It's an ache for God. It'll, it, and by the way, the pornography itch will never, ever, 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 ever go away until you get satisfied in God. Never go away. Never go away. Uh, some of us in the room, we have like an addiction. We have, we have a hunger for just, you know, not, not just like one beer, but for like 15. Like we can't even be satisfied until we get about 15 in. Some of us like, wow, that's a lot. Well, some people drink a lot. I don't know. What, you, you can't escape. There, there, there is no euphoria. There's not an escape. What you're really, really looking for is the bread of heaven. And it just, it, it isn't in a Bud Light. I mean, well, it would, naturally it isn't in a Bud Light. It would never be there. But, but it, it's, those are terrible. Why do people drink those? I don't know. But, but you're looking for the bread of heaven. You're looking for the bread of heaven. And you, you, can't go from, you can't go from one sexual escapade to another. You're really looking for the bread of heaven. For everybody in here who's going from one sexual escapade to another, and by the way, I, in a room this size, I guarantee you there's people who are going from one sexual escapade to another. We'll try a little of this, a little of this, a little bit of her, a little bit of her. Try this, a little bit of him. I'm looking for this, I'm looking for that. What you're really looking for is you're looking for the bread of heaven. And you'll never find it. You'll never find Can I just say something to the church? Like, sex is not the best thing in the world. It's awesome. It is not the best thing in the world. The bread of heaven. It's the bread of heaven. This is this is it. You gotta, oh, we gotta we gotta be satisfied, in with the bread of heaven. Here's what I believe. I believe that if Jesus says that He's the bread of heaven, and you never have to be hungry again if you eat of Him, I believe that it's possible to actually be a contented person. 
And I also believe that the narrative that the world is producing right now, the narrative that blesses angst and the narrative that blesses uh, this thing of never being satisfied. I'm never satisfied. You hear it in coaches. You hear it in athletics. I'm, we're never satisfied. And you hear it in business meetings. And how, do you, how did you get to be so great? Well, I was never satisfied. And I just I kept pressing. And I believe that's a garbage narrative. And I believe for all the greatness that I'm never satisfied has produced, I believe there's a greater greatness that God wants to release through His Son and through intimacy and through through having contact with the bread of heaven. I think it's possible to live a non-angst contented life and do more than the angst driven... uh, I can't even talk now. Do you know what I'm talking about? I believe it's a garbage narrative. Yeah. Well, how did you get to be such a great musician? Well, I was never satisfied. I was driven. And when everyone else was like, when everyone else was out with their friends, man, I was grinding in my... Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, whatever. I think, I think what you're really looking for is the bread of heaven. And I think you could probably get further by being somebody who has quiet contentment that comes from the Lord Jesus. You know the greatest feeling? The greatest feeling. How many of you have ever experienced this? Like you're at home with your family and you're around the dinner table and we've all just had a killer meal and there's dishes everywhere and no one cares. Right? Oh man, I think, I think those are little prophetic windows. I think the bread of heaven showed up. I think when, you've got, when you're at your long table and all the cousins and, and the aunts and the uncles and, and mama and daddy and <laughs> I don't know. I just thought of Brie all of a sudden. But when mom and dad are there and, and you just had a really great food and, and you drank some really great wine and, and there was like mashed potatoes and I, I can't even, I, you know what I mean? And then everyone just kicks back and, and then people just start talking about whatever it is that we're talking about and everyone's just like happy. There's just sort of a glow that sits on it. I think that's like the bread of heaven showing up. I think it's possible to live like that. I think it's possible to live a quiet and a content life in God. I don't think Jesus would say, eat of me and you can be satisfied forevermore if it wasn't possible. I don't think you have to live the rest of your life grinding your nose off. I mean, if Jesus can take a couple loaves and a little fish... And feed ten or fifteen thousand people. What can he do if he starts distributing his own body? Come on, it's better. It's better. Amen. Amen. Amen, Adam. That was good. I feel better. <laughs> this is. I just told you the truth. This morning. I told you the truth. All right, if you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? Not everybody at once. If you're on the ministry team, come on up this morning. Uh, and why don't the rest of us stand up and we'll just, we'll pray that we could have a taste of the bread of heaven. After I'm finished praying for you, if you need to, if you need prayer for any reason, these people are, great and they're trained and they will love to pray for you.
Oh, Jesus, we love you this morning. Oh, you're wonderful. Jesus, we just, we declare that, that, that you satisfy, that you quiet our hearts. God, as a church, we just say that we want to partake of the bread of heaven. That we want to, that we want to taste you. That we want to, to feed ourselves on you. That we want to, we want to, we want to have the ache of our heart quieted by you. God, even now, we just, we give up every other narrative. God, right now, we just, we give up the need to find satisfaction in all these other places. God, for those of us who are trapped by our appetites in Egypt... God, would you come and would you set us free? And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is the bread that comes down from heaven, able to satisfy all men. Thank you once again for stopping by the Vineyard Campbellsville podcast. If you want to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, in addition to our website, you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Until next time, though, we say peace to you and yours. Thank you.